few years ago, I took a short sabbatical, a, a mini two-week break from work. I was in my eighth year of working with two different congregations, doing a lot of pastoral care, and I was actually in a season of doing an awful lot of funerals, so much so that I had kind of developed a little nickname in Tallahassee, the funeral lady. <laughs> Our eldest child, Abigail, was in her junior year of college. Our twin boys had just headed off for their freshman year of college, and Clark and I were empty nesting for the first time and I was having a really difficult time with this. So I took a 2,000 mile journey in two weeks. It was my own personal Thelma and Louise trip. <laughs> Without Thelma. <laughs> and no going over the cliff. <laughs> it was the best gift I've ever given myself. I drove from Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee. I finally made it back to Tallahassee. The first week was spent visiting friends that I reconnected with and got renewed by our conversation. I visited places that had been important to me in my journey. The last week, the second week, I spent at an Episcopal convent, a spiritual retreat center, where Thomas Merton and I had a lot of alone time. Clark asked me when I got home, should I be worried? You keep talking about Thomas. <laughs> but before I even got to the retreat center, God and I had some amazing adventures. Now let me just tell you about one. On this journey, I decided that I would visit some important places to me, and one of those places would be uh, the area where I worked in my first summer of ministry after one year of seminary. The summer of 1984, I worked with another pastor serving three teeny tiny churches in Falling Springs, Sinking Springs, and Tinkling Springs, Virginia. It was right near Hot Springs. You cannot make this stuff up. I lived upstairs in someone's barn apartment, and the cows would moo me to sleep at night. It was a great summer. To be fair, I must tell you that I had started this summer job knowing that at the end of the summer I was going to take a leave of absence from the ministry because I doubted my sense of call to ordain ministry. I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted more adventure. I did not want to serve in a local church. Bull ring. Just saying, that's where I was. So I decided I was going to leave seminary and go work in Atlanta with the homeless as soon as the summer was over. I learned a lot that summer in Virginia. I just didn't realize for many years to come how much I learned. So back to my trip in 2012. My mini sabbatical, I headed north towards Covington, Virginia. I'm looking for my little churches on my GPS and only one of them came up. <laughs> Falling Spring Presbyterian Church. It's a beautiful little church. It was just like I remembered it being 28 years ago. This white church sitting high on a hill. The doors were open, and as you would preach, you could see the mountains outside. It was just glorious. Well, after I got out of the car, walked around, no one else was there, and I began to walk towards the cemetery that was connected to the church. And as I started walking, I felt this strong sense of like being pulled towards one tombstone. And out of my mouth, came the words, Gracie Martin, Gracie Martin. And before I knew it, I was in front 
of Grace Martin's tombstone. 1894 to 1984, Grace Martin was the very first funeral I ever officiated at. In that moment, it was as if the heavens opened up and the voice of God said, Sally, I have been with you every step of the way, preparing you for the work I have called you to do. You have had some adventures along the way to get there, but I have been with you, and I will be with you through it all. I was filled with a sense of the holy, and in those moments I felt that I had glimpsed something of the mystery of God. I sat down on the ground in front of her tombstone, and I wept. I don't know how long I stayed there, but I believe that for me, on top of that mountain, I was sitting on holy ground. In the jargon or the language of Christian experience, this was for me truly a mountaintop experience. It changed nothing, and yet somehow everything changed. Our text this morning talks, speaks of another mountaintop experience, the mountaintop experience perhaps. It is the transfiguration of Christ. And whether we admit it or not, even those of us who are very open to the mystery of God find ourselves a little uneasy in the presence of a text like this one. The transfiguration of Christ, all aglow, dazzling, right? What does it mean? And yet, we come to this narrative every year on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday as the beginning of, the, of Lent is upon us. Lent marks the beginning of Christ's journey to the cross to crucifixion and death and suffering. We know the story of death all too well around here lately. As we endure the stories of our friends, as we have had to say goodbye to so many of our friends in recent weeks, we know this story as we see it in the suffering of other friends and family members or the child who is ill or the career that has fallen apart, or the relationship that seems beyond any point of healing, we are at a crucial point in the gospel story. According to Matthew's gospel, just six days earlier in the previous chapter that was read, Peter makes a public profession of Jesus. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then a few verses later, when Jesus first predicts his own suffering and death, Peter, same guy, protests. No, God forbid it, Lord, that won't happen to you. And with that, Jesus admonishes Peter with the strongest admonition, perhaps, in all of Scripture. Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And immediately he turns to his disciples and says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. No doubt Peter and the other disciples were uncomfortable with Jesus' words of suffering and death. Maybe they wanted a second opinion. Surely they're a bit confused about who it is that they are following. And yet, they continue to follow. Six days later, Peter, James, and John, three of Jesus' closest companions, accompany him up the mountain. 
Now they've been following Jesus with the other disciples for several years now throughout Galilee, and they have watched him preach and teach and heal the sick. They know him as Jesus the man, the rabbi, the teacher, the miracle worker, but they don't really grasp totally who he is, and sometimes they are very slow to catch on. I have one friend who likes to say, this is why they're called disciples. <laughs> I like that. You can use it anytime. <laughs> but Peter comes closest to getting it when he declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And even then, though, we wonder, does he fully catch it until they are up on that mountain? And they see Jesus in all his glory. When Christ's glory and majesty shine, that's when they get it. With their own eyes, these three behold the glory of God, God incarnate in human flesh. And they realize that he is not standing alone, but he's standing there with Moses and Elijah. Like he does that all the time. I mean, an everyday event, right? Mm-mm. So when considering such a moment of awe and glory, what is the proper response? What do we do? How do we handle it when we find ourselves in the midst of this holy moment? Last week, I saw the movie uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Now, it's the, Sean Penn and Ben Stiller in it, and Sean Penn's character is a famous <coughs> photographer, and Walter Mitty is trying to find him. And he tracks him down on top of a mountain in the Himalayas where he is trying to photograph a snow leopard. Very hard. They call them a ghost cat. And the conversation between them, when he finally gets the cat in view, perfectly lined up and in focus, Walter Mitty says to the photographer, well, when are you going to take the shot? And he says, sometimes I don't. If I like a moment, for me personally, I don't like to have the distraction of the camera. I just want to stay in it. Walter Mitty says, stay in it? Yeah, stay in it. Right there. Right here. Stay in it. Stay in that holy moment. Right here. Right there. It's somehow a mystery. It's sacred. It's holy. Or imagine the final note sung by Pavarotti at the conclusion of one of Puccini's operas. Every note, perfect pitch. The percussion and strings working together to make this incredible harmony. It's a glorious moment. And then the final notes of the performance fade into silence. For there are times when silence is the very best response. Too often, though, we don't know how to handle this moment of silence. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable pregnant pause. And so even though this silent awe fills the air, someone begins to clap. And then everyone else joins in, and the overwhelming applause finally dies down, and the discomfort and the moment pass, and the moment has become a memory. It was kind of like that, I think, on the mountain. Here we have these uncomfortable disciples. Perhaps they're a little uncertain about how to respond in the presence of all this glory. So Peter says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let me make for you three temples, three shrines, three tents. I'll make one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
got something to do. Perhaps he was anticipating a really long conversation with Moses and Elijah, and they would need a shelter. Perhaps seeing Jesus dazzling bright and transformed, he recognizes that redemption, deliverance, salvation, liberation is standing right in front of him. And he wants to celebrate that glorious moment and not let it slip away. Maybe that's it. As you know, the celebration of glory is not a bad thing unless it gets in the way of the main thing. While they were, he was still speaking, the text says, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. The desire to stay and celebrate on the mountain gets in the way of the real mission that will lead Jesus to the cross. Redemption. God's salvation is right in front of them, but it's not like they had imagined it. It's not like any of us imagined it, because it's not a nationalistic celebration vindicating a nation. Rather, it is the voice of God calling people to live lives of justice and compassion and hope. The Son of God willing to give his life for your sake and mine, for the sake of the whole world. I think many of us still have trouble understanding this redemption, this new life that is even now in our midst. But somehow, Matthew invites us into the story. And so as the disciples climb the mountain, we climb it. As the disciples see the transfigured Christ in front of them, we see him. And as that voice from heaven speaks to them, that same voice speaks to us. Their story becomes our story. The call to take up our crosses and follow, the call that Christ gave to the disciples, it's the same call that comes to you and to me today. No doubt Peter, James, and John were all a bit terrified when they heard this voice and heard about its message. The text says they fell to the ground, overcome with fear. But Jesus, he calmed their fears Many theologians think that the transfiguration story is in the gospel so that it would strengthen and support disciples for what's coming next. The road to Jerusalem, the cross, Easter morning, the emerging church. And no doubt this experience would strengthen and support disciples. One reflection, though, that I read from a Lutheran pastor, Nancy Easton, helped me to see that maybe there's another transfiguration happening here. When the glow is gone and Moses and Elijah are moved out of sight and only Jesus stands in front of them, Jesus touched them, told them to get up and do not be afraid. He touched them. That word in Greek, hepsito, is used several times and it always deals with healing and transforming someone's life. When they are filled with fear, Jesus touches the disciples on the mountain. Just like he touched and healed the leper. Just like he touched and healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with fever. Just like he touched and healed the two different blind men and gave them their sight. The glow was over, but with the touch of Jesus, another transfiguration was beginning. I mean, seeing Jesus transfigured up there in all that glory, it's pretty awesome. 
but by itself, it held little meaning or hope for people. I mean, it's a great story. Boy, you should have seen Jesus. He was awesome. But then what? What does it mean? But the Jesus who shone with the fullness of the glory of God and who also walks our grimy streets, touching people who are struggling and suffering and healing them. And the one who suffered himself by dying for you and for me and who now lives so that we can live too. Now, my friends, that is a story that needs to be told. It is worth sharing. In a daily devotional I read by Patrick Wilson, Presbyterian minister, he wrote this. God's glory and magnificence and power and majesty are unsurpassable, we say. But we must also declare that God's glory and magnificence and power and majesty are surpassed by God's willingness to shed it all in order that we might finally recognize God's love and gentleness. The measureless power that made the heavens and the earth concentrates in the hand reaching out to us. And that kind of transfiguration you have witnessed. You have known God's love in acts of compassion and in encouraging words. You have observed God's power and courageous and selfless deeds. You have seen lives changed because God's presence was in the midst of you have witnessed moments that are holy. It might be your story or the story of a friend, but these are stories that the world needs to know about and know that God is with us through it all. That God is always working, touching us, healing us, changing us, and calling us to do holy things. You know, earlier I mentioned that at my last church, I got that little nickname, the funeral lady. Someone at the last service said, we'll change it and call you the comfort lady. I thought, that's really nice, but I was the funeral lady there. In fact, people would introduce me to their friends. Oh, this is Sally, my minister. She's really good with funerals. <laughs> I would sort of say, it's a niche ministry. <laughs> well, at some point along the way, though, I realized that I knew a lot of people who were grieving. And I decided to start a little group, a lunch bunch, if you will. We called ourselves Second Thursdays, real catchy. But we met at a different restaurant every month. And you could come and talk about the one that you loved and lost. or You didn't have to, though. But if you wanted to, you could. It was a safe space. You might share stories. And at least we were in the presence of people who understood. We were in the presence of friends. It was just really a social gathering. But it was a safe place to meet new people and to reconnect with others. Well, just before I left Tallahassee, I joined the group for one final lunch together. Two of the women had lost children. Two of the women were still grieving the loss of their mothers. And the rest of the group had buried their spouses. I watched listening to these women from different generations reaching out to offer support to each other. And I was amazed by the conversation that I observed. They shared incredible stories, not just about grief and pain, but about their faith, sometimes wavering, sometimes strong. I listened as they shared stories of God's presence with them in the midst of their suffering and how their different small groups 
The choir was one mention. The Bible study, the disciple class, the Sunday school class, these different small groups reached out to them with compassion. And how are the words also of modern authors and the ancient verses from scripture brought consolation. It was not a cry fest, although tears were welcome. It was not a pity party. Rather, it was giving witness to one another and to me about the love of God that had sustained them. It's a healing love that touched them deeply. A love to which they still cling when the waves of grief come. As they shared their stories, they were Christ to one another. I sat back and I realized that this moment is a holy moment. It is glorious. And it reminded me of that moment that I sat on the ground on that mountain in front of Grace Martin's tombstone. As we got ready to leave, we acknowledged that the time together had been meaningful and life-giving. The ground between us somehow was now holy ground. For we had experienced Christ's transforming love through the touch and care of one another. Our gathering concluded and I realized that it had changed nothing and yet everything changed. Friends, in this season of Lent to come, let us remember that we follow Christ who gives us mountaintop experiences to strengthen and support us for the journey ahead even the journey to the cross. And we follow Christ, who touches us with healing love and invites us to generously share it with the world. May it be so. Would you pray with me? Oh,